Hi, everyone. My name is Jen Tosleep. And I'm Jose Sanchez. And we are the hosts of the Criminology Academy, where we are criminally academic. In today's episode, we're speaking with Professor Jillian Taranovic about victimization and school violence. Jillian Taranovic is an associate professor and director of the Crime Victim Research and Policy Institute in the College of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Florida State University. She received her PhD in criminology and criminal justice from Arizona State University in 2015. Her research is rooted in the study of victimization, violence, and correctional policy, and much of her work focuses on youth violent victimization and its consequences. She is the author of Thinking About Victimization, Context and Consequences, published by Rutledge in 2019, and co-editor of Revitalizing Victimization Theory, Revisions, Applications, and New Directions, published also by Rutledge in 2021. Her work has been supported by the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of Justice, the Office for Victims of Crime, and Arnold Ventures. She received the 2019 Caving Young Scholar Award from the American Society of Criminology. Thank you so much for joining us today, Joe. Thank you for having me. I'm a longtime fan, so this is very <laughs> exciting. We are very excited to have you on. <laughs> yes, we are. All right. So a brief overview of what this episode will entail. We're going to start off with some general questions on victimization and then move into some questions about school victimization and violence. And then lastly, move into a monograph that Jill is the primary author on that examines six decades of research on school violence. So Jose, I'll let you get started. Okay, so when we start out asking these big, broad, general questions, so to sort of kick this episode off, and before we jump into our main discussion on school-related violence and victimization, we thought it would be helpful to discuss victimization more generally. So our very first question for you, Jill, is when we are talking about victimization, what exactly are we referring to, or more specifically, what are the different types of victimization? Okay, this is a great question. Victimization is a very broad term. And so typically in criminology, this term is used to describe being the victim or target of some form of interpersonal crime, right? Various forms of violent and property crimes. Victimization can also encompass many experiences of cruel or unfair treatment or various forms of abuse and harassment that may not necessarily be criminal or defined as illegal. So victimization can encompass verbal and emotional abuse, bullying, online harassment, being targeted for fraud, and it can even encompass exposure to violence and other indirect forms of experiences with crime. So there's a lot. Typically, when we think of victimization, we think of violence. And, you know, as you noted, the majority of my research focuses on violent victimization, particularly among youth, but there's a lot more than that. So it's a really broad area of study and one that is exciting because of that. It's, it's very, very diverse what victimization can cover. And so what are the primary sources of victimization then? Okay, okay so another question. <laughs> I mean, this is a very good question. It's a big question and not an easy one to answer because it's almost like asking, what are the sources of crime? Or 
why do people get mistreated, right? There's definitely not one simple answer, which is also what makes it interesting to discuss. But there are many complex sources of victimization that operate at various levels of analysis, ranging from factors at the individual level, all the way to broader macro, social, and structural forces. So you can almost try to envision victimization as like this event that exists at the center of like a Bronfenbrenner-esque ecological systems model, where there are various sources that operate at the individual level. So features of people themselves, including their personalities, behaviors, routines, and markers of vulnerability. But there are also sources at the microsystem level. Peer and family dynamics shape risks for victimization and factors at the broader meso, exo, and macro system levels, right? Including neighborhood structural and cultural factors, broader structural constraints and attitudes and ideologies that influence the vulnerability of certain individuals or groups to victimization. Now, the predominant theoretical perspectives typically used to explain victimization within the field of criminology are opportunity-based. So, so namely lifestyle and routine activity theories. And these perspectives emerged, I mean, they're, they're different perspectives, but they emerged around the same time. And at the heart of them are this idea that crime and victimization are the result of broad patterns of human interactions. And victimization happens when there is a convergence in time and space of a motivated offender, a suitable target, and the lack of capable guardianship. So when thinking about these different, all these multiple complex factors that influence victimization at these various levels of analysis, theoretically, they all influence victimization because they're viewed as increasing opportunities for victimization to occur. Now, when thinking about the sources of victimization, you know, there are many correlates, known correlates of victimization that are very similar to the basic correlates of crime. So demographic profiles of victims are similar to offenders, where victimization generally, of course, there are exceptions depending on the type of victimization you're talking about, but generally, victimization is more likely to happen to young males, to persons of color, to people who have low self-control, who hang out with delinquent peers, who live in stressful environments, in economically disadvantaged and high crime communities where there's been a breakdown in formal and informal social controls and where there may be subcultures of violence that thrive. So the major correlates of crime tend to be the same major correlates of victimization, but theoretically the ways in which they are presumed to operate to influence victimization tends to be different than for offending because at the most basic level, victimization is not a behavior that people typically choose for themselves like offending is. So the overarching theoretical perspectives are still opportunity-based and these various criminological correlates, rather than being viewed as sources of motivation, like they are for offending, they're reframed as sources of vulnerability. And they are factors that, for whatever reason, make individuals seem like attractive targets and put them in contact with motivated offenders in the absence of capable guardianship. So that's as much as I can say right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that was great. And I do think I like how you brought up what we call the victim-offender overlap, but then also separated yeah. it out and said that the sources of being a victim and being mm -hmm. an offender 
are theorized differently, which is well, interesting. They, they and should I, be. They They're should not be. always, yeah. but yeah. they should be. Yes. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in your 2019 book that, you know, I've sort of briefly mentioned in your intro, thinking about victimization, you sort of make an interesting discussion that we sort of want to touch on where you state that the offender's perspective is perhaps the most overlooked component of victimization theory and research. And so can you tell us a little bit more about this? Like, what does this perspective from the offender or what does the perspective from the offender's side look like? Sure. So just to, to back up a little bit, I mean, like historically, the study of victimization has not been so privileged in criminology. And the study of victimization emerged much later than the study of offending. And so although there were, you know, Von Hentig in the 1940s and Wolfgang in the 50s all touched on victimization and the victim-offender overlap, really the contemporary explosion in victimization research really didn't happen until like the 1970s. And so thinking about our full history as as a discipline, I mean, this is relatively recent. And when victimization theorizing and and the study of it took off, I mean, it really was from this opportunity perspective and where, again, like from a routine activity standpoint, the behavior of the victim is central to explaining why crime occurs. So even though in this crime, the traditional little crime triangle where there's a motivated offender, a lack of guardianship and a suitable target. Offender motivation and why people are motivated to commit crime is kind of irrelevant. And Cohen and Felsen, you know, in their original formulation of routine activity theory, touch on this, but it's even become even more pronounced over time, where in a lot of Felsen's writings, it's like the motivation is irrelevant. We don't care where it comes Mm -hmm. from. And the idea that crime can happen to anyone at any time in any situation is kind of a hallmark of this perspective. And so if you can just change victims' behaviors or change how attractive one is as a target or increase guardianship, crime won't happen because it's kind of assumed that motivation is constant. There's motivated offenders anywhere. And if the conditions are good enough, anyone will commit a crime. But, you know, Travis Pratt and I who wrote the the book, the 2019 book that you mentioned, you know, we kind of take issue with this because presented with criminal opportunities, most people still won't go that far to partake in them. And so this kind of assuming that offender motivation is constant and that there's motivated offenders everywhere at all times is kind of it. (laughs) it's difficult to explain and predict victimization in this way. And so we still don't understand fully why presented with the same opportunities, only some people will choose to engage in crime and others won't. But what we argue is that we really need to take offender decision-making more seriously. Now, generally the idea that offenders will choose targets that are, you know, appear to be less risky and most rewarding is, I mean, that's a hallmark of crime. So like offenders who are going to target victims that look like there's a high probability of getting caught, that they're going to fight back, 
for that, they're not going to get much of a reward out of it. I mean, that's, that's not an attractive target. Mm -hmm. But there is still a lot to learn about why certain people will choose to engage in crime when the opportunities are prime, and others still won't. So yeah, that's kind of the basis of this. And there are many perspectives on victimization that dominate that cannot explain this variability. Hmm. So there's definitely a need to, again, kind of rethink and revitalize some of our perspectives to better be able to predict why victimization happens and the situations under which it unfolds, given that there are criminal opportunities everywhere and victimization is still relatively rare relative to those prime situations. Especially I feel like when it comes to violence, like maybe someone will steal something from someone, but actual violent offending is probably not just if the opportunity presents itself, that's what's going to happen. Exactly. And, you know, I've been critical of some of the routine activity research, and it's not necessarily critical of the perspective at its core. It's kind of the way that it's been translated into practice and the way people test and try and predict the situations under which victimization is most likely. So routine activity theory, you know, when Conan Felsen introduced it, I mean, this was at a time when crime rates were increasing, yet the U.S. was also experiencing increases in economic prosperity. Mm -hmm. And so crime rates were, were rising despite there being not so unfavorable economic circumstances. And the predominant perspectives at the time were that crime was extremely rooted in poverty and inequality and disadvantage. So why then was crime rising at this time when there was boom happening? And so they really explained at the macro level, okay, well, people are shifting their routine activities. They're joining the labor force. They're leaving their homes. They're moving through spaces where they're coming into contact with strangers. And electronic goods are becoming more portable and there's more things to steal. I mean, those kinds of things. So at the macro level, looking at these shifts in general routines over time makes sense for explaining crime and victimization. The problem is when you take those same principles and try and apply them to the individual level where you look at, okay, do you ride the bus to work? Do you go shopping? Do you, you know, take public transportation or do you spend nights away from home? Even if those nights away from home, it's not necessarily like you're doing anything that, that crazy. When you take that and apply it to victimization at the individual level, it's problematic because most people take public transportation, travel to work, travel to school, not during COVID, obviously, but, you know, in the before times. And yet victimization is still extremely rare relative to the people who partake in those activities. So there's a bit of an ecological fallacy that has happened in the literature with the way some of those routines are, are translated into practice. I mean, I've seen studies where they're linking victimization to spending time in coffee shops or at a library or in a park. And it's like, okay, well, what are they doing when they're in the park? Yeah. Or what kind of park is it? You know what I mean? Like, so there's a lot to be desired, I think, with respect to how some of these things are thought about and, and measured. So in my work, I try to be more precise and, okay, drill down, okay, what is exactly risky about this behavior? And it can't be that something that is so general that so many people do can truly predict very rare forms of violence. So yeah. we need to do a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've recently 
taking an interest in routine activity theory. Like I'm still pretty fresh in the literature with it. And mainly it got sparked because I wrote a chapter where we talk about it. And so I would be more than happy to derail this entire episode and turn it into a routine (laughs) activity episode, but I won't. But it's such an interesting theory because I've also heard, so I was at Target one day, like like a few years back with my with my wife and we saw these like fake camera security cameras oh, yeah. for sale and you know we sort of joked like why would anyone spend twenty dollars for a camera that doesn't even do anything <laughs> like I think you, you you pop some batteries in and like the little red blinking light comes on mm-hmm. but then we got introduced to routine activity theory and you know as if you go based off of that theory that fake camera can serve mm-hmm. as a capable guardian, right? Because Absolutely. Some, that's, that's target gonna, hardening. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. someone that's or, like maybe yeah. thinking about breaking into your house may not want to take the chance that that camera is actually functional. Yeah, right? exactly. And I don't take issue with routine activity, the routine activity perspective overall. I mean, I, I buy into opportunity perspectives. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's just sometimes the way that it's translated into practice, especially yeah. when you're when you're trying to predict or explain violent interpersonal victimization, it's like, okay, you need to maybe let's not look at who's just outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Like right. you know, maybe yeah. there's yeah, there's some I, more. There's some more to it. Yeah, I but, do think it gets a little reduction or oversimplified sometimes yeah. where they're like, Everyone just stick an ADT sticker on your window and you'll be all right. <laughs> yeah. Situational crime prevention. It's huge. Yep. Right. Yeah. It's huge. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to do for people. Exactly. And you yeah. don't have to change or worry about changing the sources of offender motivation or right. what breeds that desire or need to commit crime in the first place. You're just focusing on the victim. And yep. so, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will say, though, there is one policy that I can get on board with that comes out of routine activity theory, where, where it says, like, people that run with dogs are less likely to be victimized. I'm like, perfect. <laughs> let's just give everyone a dog. All right. So let's move into kind of one of these newer, I don't know exactly how new it is, ideas of victimization, which is cyber victimization. So what exactly is cyber victimization and how often does cyber victimization actually occur? Okay, these are great questions. (laughs) (laughs) Great questions. So I haven't done a ton of research on cyber victimization, but I mean, this is a very exciting and growing area of research, especially as, you know, you think about for kids in particular in Mm -hmm. schools, when schools have shut down, I mean, does victimization just move online? in terms of bullying and harassment, but cyber victimization, again, can encompass many different forms of abuse and harassment or fraud, right? And so it can be bullying, it can be scams, it can be hacking. And when we think about cyber crime, I think the common perception is that there's like some genius hacker that's sitting behind computer screens looking to steal millions. And for the most part, cybercrime tends to occur kind of with the same opportunity structures as crime in general, where people are looking for easy, quick, low-risk opportunities to, especially when you think about 
fraud, right? Like instrumental forms of crime to victimize someone. But there's a lot of bullying and harassment that occurs online. And in general, though, like most forms of crime, cyber victimization tends to follow the same kind of age crime curve as crime in general. So although we think elderly are going to be these, the number one targets of online harassment or victimization or fraud, it's like, it's actually young people still. And so Travis Pratt has this article that he wrote that talks about the myth of the clueless senior citizen (laughs) and the tech savvy teen, but it really is a myth. Like young people are still more often likely to be victims of cybercrime than elderly folks. So yeah. It makes me think of like AIM, like using AOL instant messenger. (laughs) Let's just date ourselves really quick. But, and I mean, like even then, like I remember not frequently, but I got bullied like online with instant messenger, just like, oh yeah, you know, and yeah. So So much aggression going on online, especially among kids. Right. And I mean, I'm old, I'm older than you all. So, I mean, I didn't grow up. Thank goodness. I wasn't in, you know, junior high or high school where there was Instagram. I mean, I didn't have my space until I was like out of high school. So Mm -hmm. I can't imagine you know, the interpersonal forms of aggression that occur online and what it must feel like to not be able to escape that. So yeah, but it's a really interesting and important area of study. And I'm really curious to see the kind of work that comes out looking at these trends, especially for youth during COVID, right? Yeah, when schools right. were shut down and, and if the kids who were most likely to be targeted at school experience some type of reprieve from that, during COVID because they weren't actually in the classroom with these kids or if it just kind of moved online. Online. Yeah. 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 It's such an interesting area. And I know it's not your sort of like your area of expertise or something that you're said that would I think something I always hear with sort of like bullying online and things like that is, well, it's online. So why don't you just turn off the computer and walk away? Or why don't you just log off of Facebook or whatever? And I think initially that sort of made sense to me, but, you know, I also do remember a time before the internet was a thing, but now that I, the more that I think about it, the more it just seems again, very reductionist. Like, yeah, I mean, it's the same thing as, as saying, like, if you don't want to be victimized, like if you don't want to be the victim of street crime, like don't go outside Yeah, or don't take the bus or don't go to work or don't go shopping, you know? Yeah. Well, and any more, preventative efforts that we can make to to stop this yeah (laughs) but it's like it's probably hard to just walk away from the internet anymore because most people just have it on their phones it's with you all the time like yeah and it's the primary mode of communication I think for yeah for a lot of young people so yeah it's interesting I'm fascinated by people who do this work and especially right now there's so much that is being done on like hate speech and radicalization online. And I think that's a fascinating area of study. Yeah. 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 Okay. So let us transition now to a little more into school violence or in school victimization. And when we use the term school violence, we think that a good majority of the people mainly will probably think of like the big events, like school shootings, you know, Columbine, Sandy Hook. But it's not just that, right? Like there's more to it 
than that. So when we use the term of, of school violence, can you talk to us about what behaviors fall under this phrase of school violence? Yeah. So school violence, again, exactly like you said, when you hear the term or when you think about violence in schools, for most people, they think about school shootings and mass school shootings, right? These high profile events, but those are relatively rare and tragic and awful and they should never happen. But relative to the full kind of spectrum of violence and interpersonal aggression that occur in schools on a daily basis, yeah, they're much more rare. So school violence is a very, again, broad term that can encompass various forms of mistreatment and aggression at school. So for young kids, violence can be bullying, right? Physical pushing, shoving, it can encompass, oh, bringing weapons to school, threatening people. It's really any form of, in the literature, it's really been applied to ex explain any form of aggression all the way to serious forms of violence that occur on school grounds. And typically, you know, school violence, when you think about that, it, it's usually applied to like K to 12 schools. Yeah. And so, yeah, but the majority of research that's produced on school violence is actually not weapons-based or really serious forms, it's mostly bullying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how common are these forms of school violence? So relative to violence that occurs among youth in the community, school violence is more rare. So generally, kids are safer at school than not at school. And Callie Renison and Heather Zaykowski in my new edited volume, Revitalizing Victimization Theory, have an excellent chapter that they wrote about crime at school versus crime in the community. And, and kids are safer when they're in schools than outside of schools. But it still happens far more frequently than anyone would want. You know, schools are supposed to be safe havens for kids and violence still happens there. Relative to, you know, in the 1990s, when crime rates were higher, you know, school violence was much higher than as well. So school violence tends to kind of follow the same similar crime trends, where kids were much more likely to be victims of serious violence at school, like in the 90s than today. And there have been declines in school violence over time, but yeah, it still happens. And sometimes that violence is, is just a spillover of crime that occurs in the community kind of spills onto school grounds. And sometimes it's kind of unique to the school context, depending on what form of violence that you're examining or form of perpetration or victimization. When we talk about school violence, is that like violence just within the school or can it be like on the school grounds altogether? Yeah. So it varies. Some people use the phrase loosely to kind of explain violence that occurs among school children in the work that we're going to talk about today, we took a pretty hard stance on school violence, meaning that it had to have occurred on school property or on school grounds. So when kids were at school, sometimes people use the phrase to apply to, you know, kids going to and from school that also encompasses school violence, but typically it's just violence that occurs on school grounds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the consequences of school victimization and are they at all similar to general victimization? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, the bulk of my research and the stuff that I get really excited about, excited about is studying the consequences of victimization. 
And in part because it's really interesting to try and understand why some people, despite experiencing similar forms of victimization, not everyone experiences negative consequences as a result. So why do some people experience negative consequences and others don't? What are those protective factors in their lives that can kind of buffer those traumas? Why do some people maybe not internalize that experience and have it affect them the same way as others? To some, victimization can be like this singular traumatic life-altering experience. And then for others, like there's not that same impact. So I find it really fascinating. But the consequences of school victimization are similar to the consequences of violence generally, or victimization generally, where there are many social, behavioral, health consequences that stem from this experience, negative outcomes primarily. And with respect to schools in particular, this is concerning because if you're victimized at school, that may affect your academic performance, it may affect your willingness to stay in school. So there are consequences of school victimization that are school-based and that can carry really severe educational and socioeconomic consequences for kids. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's consequences that occur at the individual level, the peer level, mm-hmm. the school level. And yeah, there's, there's health consequences too that have been linked to victimization. There was recently NIJ funded around the same time that this project was funded. They also funded a, a large-scale meta-analysis on the consequences of school violence. And Dorothy Esplage was part of this. And it's insightful. It's really, really good, really comprehensive. But you can see that school victimization is linked to many interpersonal consequences that affect people's well-being. So it's important to try and intervene and prevent school violence from happening. And when it does, to figure out ways to support kids so that it doesn't have this lasting impact on their lives that can you know derail their experiences. Right. Has the research found any kinds of like protective factors that like what you were saying kind of mitigate these consequences? Yeah, I mean, social support is huge. So whether that comes from peers, from family, from supportive mentors, from teachers, support is huge in ensuring that people can cope with and overcome, I guess, their experiences with victimization. And the worst is, you know, coping with this form in in maladaptive ways Mm -hmm. that can lead to even more harms in the future. So just kind of helping kids deal with these experiences in, in positive and healthy ways can really help mitigate those consequences and, yeah, support and coping resources are, are big. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So then how have like policymakers or school administrators kind of responded to violence in school? Okay. So because when people think about school violence, they're most likely to think about school shootings. Mm-hmm. The predominant response to school violence is in response to school shootings. And So policymakers tend to engage in or promote policies that increase, you know, or that basically the target hardening of schools is a huge trend, right? So metal detectors, increased surveillance, putting police in schools, putting armed guards in schools, 
see-through and bulletproof backpacks. I mean, these are all strategies that policymakers advocate for in hopes that they're going to prevent school violence, primarily school shootings. Now, when you think about the broadest spectrum of violence that is occurring, that can mostly be interpersonal forms of aggression and bullying, it's unlikely that the presence of metal detectors or, you know, having, you know, walls that people can hide behind and, you know, locked doors. Yes, those things, I mean, to the extent that they don't hurt kids' educational experience, where Mm -hmm. it's like, you don't feel like you're going to school in a prison, can be fine, but it's not really going to be that effective. And the wealth of research doesn't suggest remotely that target hardening approaches or even putting police in schools actually reduces violence or makes kids feel safer. So this is an area like many within criminology where the policymaking is kind of at odds with the research. And with respect to school violence, I think especially when most of the political will to do something about school violence involves or involves school shootings or occurs after a really high profile event, you see these explanations thrown out that are extremely oversimplified. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and school violence is a, a very complex problem. And, you know, simply target hardening schools, while in some situations may be fine and not result in unintended consequences for students. In some situations, it does, and not really that effective. Yeah. And I'm guessing sometimes it can also backfire, right? Like instead of... Oh, yeah. I mean, when you think about (laughs) the literature on police in schools and school resource officers... um, Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. I've like dabbled in it a little bit. So my wife is a school psychologist, so she kind of works in this area and so we have these conversations and we start we had a long conversation about school resource officers so I, I like dabbled a little bit in what some of the research has been done and, and one of the interesting things that I found was that a lot of schools that have SROs tend to sort of use them as a crutch so instead of dealing with behavioral problems themselves and using them as teaching moments they'll bring the SRO into into the picture and the SROs a police officer and so all they really know how to do is arrest mm-hmm. and so they'll make an arrest or they'll do and basically the kid ends up in the juvenile justice system which is kind of not the what, what you want happening with, with a lot of these kids right so the majority of research it doesn't suggest that school resource officers or their presence in schools actually reduces violence or makes students feel necessarily safer And if anything, there can be unintended consequences of increasing police presence for youth, especially youth of color, where their behaviors are more likely to be policed and responded to punitively. And that's where you get the school to prison pipeline, where if in other situations, maybe that wouldn't be the case. So there's really fascinating research that my colleague Ben Fisher has done on school resource officers and kind of the unintended consequences of those policies. And yeah, I can't say that there's a ton of evidence to suggest that they're beneficial, but they're not going anywhere. In Florida, for instance, here, there's school resource officers everywhere. And 
their presence in schools, I don't think is going away anytime soon. So there's got to be a way that we can improve their role and make it so that students feel safe and that there's certain groups of students, particularly students of color, that are not being disproportionately targeted or feel unsafe as a result of their presence. So yeah, disconnect between research and policy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I've TA'd for juvenile justice and delinquency the last two semesters and David Pyrus always assigns like a right to your representative assignment at the end of the semester. And I don't know, 75% of students always tend to write about school resource officers because, you know, they're pretty, pretty, I mean, within three-ish years of being out of high school and everyone's like, it's terrible. Like it did not help. It didn't make me feel safer. Like drug dogs are not helpful. Like it was just it's interesting to read from their perspective too, because they say the same thing that the research tends to show. So yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Are they, do you have something else to say or should we move no, into No, we can the- move into the monograph. Okay. So we are going to talk about a monograph that Jill has written with her co-authors, Travis Pratt, Teresa Kolig. Is that Kolig, right? Yeah. Kolig, yep. And Francis Cullen called Confronting School Violence, a Synthesis of Six Decades of Research. So the monograph was recently accepted for publication and will be published in the Elements in Criminology series at Cambridge University Press. I'm not sure when. Do you know when it comes out? I don't know. Maybe later this year. They move a little bit slowly, so we'll see. But hopefully this year it'll be out. So just kind of a quick summary, the monograph undertakes a comprehensive meta-analysis, which we'll talk about in a couple of minutes, the school of violence literature, studies from various disciplines like criminology, psychology, and education were included, resulting in a sample of 761 studies and 30 individual school and community correlates that were examined. And results are presented in two sections, looking at perpetration of school violence and victimization of school violence. So is that a decent summary of yeah, the monograph? Yeah, great job. Yeah, awesome. So the monograph is a product of a National Institute of Justice grant that you received, Jill, that began in 2016. And so our first question is, what was the motivation behind seeking funding for this project and then writing the monograph? Okay. So, yeah, I mean, it pains me that this this project really (laughs) did take many years to complete. And it's a very large meta-analysis and these things take so much time. This almost prevented me from wanting to do another meta-analysis ever again. (laughs) But yeah, it's a massive project. So way back when, under Obama's administration still, and this was kind of on the heels of Sandy Hook happening, NIJ set aside $6 million to invest into research on school violence. And one of the the categories that they were seeking proposals for was on the root causes of violence. And now for some, so sometimes when getting grants, it's like you have an idea and then a solicitation comes up and you're like, oh, wonderful. I was going to do this anyway. Maybe I can get funding for it. But there's other times where you see a solicitation and you're like, oh, this gives me an idea and this could be really cool. So Travis Pratt and Frank Cullen were, they kind of were like, 
this could be a cool opportunity for a meta-analysis if you were interested in doing this project. And I was like, sure. I mean, I was, I was just starting as an assistant professor and I was like, why not? This, this sounds great to take a, a stab at getting this grant. And, and it, it was funded. But so one of the primary reasons why we did this was, okay, so NIJ setting aside all this money to understand what the root causes of school violence. Why don't we know yet what they are? School violence is not a new area of research. And at the time when we submitted our proposal, we even noted that, you know, there's a, a whole journal devoted to the study of school violence called the Journal of School mm-hmm. Violence. And at the time it was in like its 18th volume, right? So it's wow, like, yeah. so why is it that we have all of this research that's being produced on violence in schools, yet we still don't really know what the key correlates are? Probably because the knowledge hasn't yet been organized in a way that makes it useful. So we saw this as a cool opportunity to take stock of this literature and analyze all of this work that has been done over these years to try and identify what the major kind of correlates of school violence were, school violence and victimization at, you know, all these different levels of analysis. So that was kind of like the motivating factor. And with NIJ, I mean, most of their their research is policy oriented. And so for us, we're like, well, how do you develop effective policies without truly knowing what the most important sources or correlates of the problem are in the first place? So this is kind of something that that's kind of how we framed the importance of this study and why we were motivated to carry it out. The problem is the literature was even way, way bigger than we ever imagined. And so it we thought, well, there's going to be a few hundred studies, but it it was much larger than that because the bullying literature is massive. So it was a huge undertaking. Teresa, when we first got this grant, was still a PhD student at Cincinnati. So she did a ton of coding as a grad mm-hmm. student. Travis and I did a ton of coding. I had a grad student that was coding too. Like it was kind of a never ending project. And then when we had all of our findings, we're like, okay, this is so big. This can't just be one article. What's the opportunity to publish something like this? And and David Weisberg had started the Elements in Criminology series. And we're like, okay, this would be a really great fit. So we submitted our proposal and everything. And the proposal's peer reviewed. And at the time, the meta-analysis, I think, went up to maybe 2016. And one of the reviewers was like, no, you should update it to, to, oh to 2019. And we were like, no. So we did even more coding. Yeah. But yeah, so it was a long project. But I think, you know, hopefully it turned out well and it's useful to others. Yeah. Yeah. When I found out that this was basically a giant meta-analysis, like I could feel the pain. So I got brought on <laughs> by a team over at Harvard to basically do a systematic review of the gang disengagement programs. And it took, like it was, a meta-analysis was not planned. One, I wouldn't even know where to begin, but it took so much time to, you know, pull the literature and then sort of sift through it to find like what is actually relevant to, to what we're doing. And I only sifted through about 350 articles to end up with seven. Uh I can't even imagine what you went through 
to end up with, what was it, 761? Yeah, too many. And before this, I mean, the largest meta-analysis that I did was with David Pyroots on the gang literature. And I was like, this is huge. I'm never doing this again. And then it was like, we got this project. (laughs) Bigger than we ever met. I think this is probably the largest meta-analysis in the social sciences. I feel like it has to be. It has to be. It's ginormous. I'm claiming it, even if it's not true. (laughs) Allegedly. Or, or what is allegedly no, cite this keyword. podcast the yes. largest ever the largest no, ever i always tell people you get around it by putting comma to the best of our knowledge yeah. comma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay so why is it important for us to understand what factors are most strongly associated with school violence and victimization but not only that also what factors are the least associated with school violence and victimization? I mean, from a practical standpoint, the factors that are most strongly associated with these outcomes are the ones that you're going to want to target in interventions. And the ones that are most weakly associated, you're probably going down the wrong road if those are the approaches that you're taking. So we'll get into the findings. But I mean, there's clearly some factors that were among the weakest in the literature that are hallmarks of of American policy when promoting school safety that no surprise, probably don't work. So but so that's from a practical standpoint, from a theoretical standpoint, though, too, it's really important to understand what are the best theoretical approaches to use to study this type of crime? Because that directly influences policy as well. So, and programming efforts. You have to try and, and unpack from a policy perspective that's, in, you know, the risk factors and the processes under which school violence occurs. And you, you need theory to inform that. And so we thought it was important to try and understand how strongly associated some of these theoretical correlates were with school violence to hopefully improve our ability to predict it and prevent it in the future. Well, speaking of which, you drew on theories, not just from criminology, but from other disciplines. So can, I mean, briefly, can you give us kind of an overview of what these different perspectives are? Yeah. So, I mean, I consider myself a pretty interdisciplinary scholar. My, my undergraduate degree is in psychology and victimization is such an interdisciplinary field that borrows from so many other, you know, theoretical frameworks that are present within developmental psychology and, you know, other fields. But I was still in over my head when we really started looking at this literature. And so when we first started developing our code sheet, you know, what are the characteristics that we're going to code for here? we quickly realized that we need to revise that because there were so many other factors that are not necessarily present in the mainstream criminological literature or that are really related to mainstream criminological theories. So broadly, I, I'll try and be brief, but you know, the criminological approaches are opportunity-based primarily and you know, the same factors and same theories that are typically used to commit violence or predict violence in the streets are usually the same factors and theories that criminologists use to try and predict violence in schools. So a lot of criminological writings tend to view school violence as the same, you know, as the product of the same sources and factors and processes that explain violence in the community. But in other literatures, 
like in developmental psychology and education and these other fields that really emphasize peer and social dynamics, school social hierarchies and vulnerability factors to victimization and especially vulnerability to bullying, you need to draw from other frameworks because you can't necessarily use like low self-control to predict all of these things. So social competence is a huge factor. So the ability for students and youth to kind of interact and be socially normative and, and communicate clearly and effectively, peer rejection and, you know, your place in these school social hierarchies and, you know, other vulnerability factors that are tied to whether you have a disability or your race and ethnicity or immigrant status or whether you identify as LGBTQ. I mean, these are other risk factors for victimization, especially that you need to kind of expand your theoretical lens for. So, yeah, there is many diverse theoretical perspectives and many predictors that were present in the literature outside of mainstream criminology that we needed to include to be inclusive of the literature. Yeah. Okay, so we probably should ask you for a little clarification on mm-hmm. what exactly a meta-analysis is, just for people that don't know. And if you could tell us what are the benefits of a meta-analysis? Sure. So meta-analyses, I'll start with the benefits of it first. So, I mean, a meta-analysis can be really useful when a body of literature is really large and when a consensus has yet to be reached concerning the relative importance of various predictors of a key outcome of interest. And so these were properties that certainly characterize the literature on violence in schools. Now, a meta-analysis is basically a fancy term for averaging effects across the literature. Like a meta-analysis is taking the mean of effect sizes. So when you have like regression coefficients, all these different models, correlation coefficients, what's the average across the whole body of work? And then you just kind of rank them. So it's a quantitative synthesis. And it's basically, you know, it's more useful. It provides you some more useful information than qualitative reviews of literature where you can't really calculate precisely the effect sizes of certain relationships. So yeah, it's a quantitative synthesis. And it's the application of statistical procedures to quantitative findings for the purpose of basically integrating, synthesizing, and making sense of them. And a meta-analysis is supposed to be more objective than a typical like qualitative or narrative review where there's a lot of researcher bias that can come into play or you're just kind of vote counting, like how many effects are significant and how many aren't, but you're not really getting the strength of effect size estimates or assessing their relative importance. So yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? It's like a study of studies. It's a study of studies. Super lay terminology. Yeah. Yeah. It's a study of studies and it's, you're just taking a mean. Yeah. On any, on your main predictors. Yeah. Across the literature. Cool. All right. So as we said, the largest meta-analysis in the social sciences. Ever. Yeah, ever, <laughs> ever. So using these 761 studies, you grouped effect size estimates under like 30 different predictor domains because there were, I'm assuming, so many different variables. So many, yeah. And so these are similar sets of variables assessed within the studies that reflect features of individuals, schools, and communities. So across all levels of analyses. 
Using these predictor domains, you focused on three primary research questions that each had two components, one for the perpetration of violence and one for victimization of violence. So we've done this in the past, and we'd just like to talk through each of your research questions piece by piece. So the first research question dealt with factors that ended up being strongly related to school violence, perpetration, and victimization. So starting off with perpetration, what factors did you find to be most strongly related to school violence perpetration? Okay, so keep in mind, this was, we use a very, very broad inclusion criteria for this meta-analysis. So we weren't in the business of excluding a lot of studies. And so school violence perpetration here encompasses many different acts. So just I'm prefacing that because it's not like this, yep. these are all serious, like robbery or weapons-based offenses. I mean, the majority of studies were based on bullying, but right. I was going to say we, like half of them were bullying or something. Like yeah. That, right? they, they're the yeah. bulk of the literature. Yes. So the strongest predictors correlates, right? We can infer causality yeah, here yeah. as our reviewers aptly noted multiple times, <laughs> but they were correct. <laughs> but the strongest correlates were other forms of antisocial behavior. So Engaging in crime and deviance outside of school or in the past, deviant peers, victimization, antisocial attitudes, peer rejection, and substance use. So those were the strongest correlates of school violence perpetration. And so, you know, when comparing this to like the perpetration of crime generally, Mm -hmm they're pretty similar, right? You see peers, antisocial attitudes, antisocial behavior, and then this evidence of the victim offender overlap. So this wasn't necessarily super surprising on its face, but those were, those were the strongest predictors, correlates. Okay. And then flipping that to victimization, what were the strongest correlates that were related to school violence victimization? So for victimization, and this is where things became interesting, is the top correlates of victimization were not the same as for offending. And so this was really interesting to us. And so for school victimization, the top correlates were prior or other forms of victimization, social competence, risk avoidance, which I'll get into, antisocial behavior, and peer rejection. So keep in mind, we also assessed like major mainstream criminological Mm -hmm. correlates that are derived from criminological theories, things like deviant peers, low self-control, social bonds. These were weak with respect to victimization. And so it really didn't appear that a lot of these predominant perspectives that are used to explain victimization outside of school really held up in the school context. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about social competence and peer rejection, I mean, emerging as these super strong correlates of of school victimization, it's like, oh, well, the peer context and social hierarchies probably are really important here. And this is something that I think mainstream criminological perspectives when applied to the study of violence in schools can't really account for all that well, but they should. Yeah. Well, and like even thinking about you know, middle school, high school, that makes sense to me. Just absolutely off of witnessing it and experiencing it. And just, yeah, it makes sense. Absolutely. Okay. So your second research question were the factors that ended up being, that were weakly related to both outcomes. And so again, let us start with perpetration. 
and the factors that were weakly associated with school violence perpetration. So things like extracurricular activities were so weak. And then even things like LGBT identification, community disorder, race, school size, socioeconomic status, age, economic deprivation. So these are, with the exception, of course, of LGBT identification, I mean, these are factors that are kind of staples of the criminological literature. You think, okay, race, age, SES, economic deprivation, these are major correlates of crime, but they actually were unrelated to, for the most part, violence perpetration in schools. So that was kind of interesting. It is interesting. Uh, the, uh, the extracurricular activities is a little surprising because you're always hearing, oh, if you keep them busy, <laughs> they can't really do anything. And what's the thing? Idle hands, do the devil's work or <laughs> whatever. But what it so was it in criminological theory with Kyle Thomas, where he was like, but think about crime. It really doesn't take that long. <laughs> Is that what he said? <laughs> he I think it was have. something like that, where he was like, does that really matter? So it makes me wonder if that's something to do with why this is not as weakly correlated. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, that is like a mainstream idea and in criminology too. Yeah. But when you think there's so much diversity in what extracurricular activities can entail, but for the most part, I mean, when you look at, when you isolate just the effect sizes that were of extracurricular activities, like they were all over the place. Mm -hmm. And on balance, like the effect was just zero. Like it just kind of canceled out. And even within studies, there were signs flipping in other directions, like depending on the type of extracurricular activity, it looked a lot like random error in terms of when you look at the distribution of effect size estimates. And the primary theoretical motivation for linking extracurricular activities to, I mean, delinquency or especially within schools, I mean, is an opportunity-based, right? It's like, okay, mm -hmm. there's competing perspectives in the literature as to whether extracurricular activities should be protective or whether they should actually provide opportunities for deviants because you're getting kids together usually with less supervision or in a less structured context than within, you know, being in a classroom. But yeah, there's not a lot there. Interesting. With respect to school violence. Yeah, perpetrated, right. right. Yeah. Okay. And so what factors were weakly related to school violence victimization? Oh, so I mentioned a little bit like the, some of the mainstream criminological factors were unrelated to school victimization. So Again, extracurricular activities were null. And then there was things like age again, bonds to parents, antisocial attitudes, weapon carrying, deviant peers, school disorder, sex. Yeah, I mean, so it really didn't seem like some of these major factors that explain victimization on the streets really transcended to the school environment. And there were other markers of vulnerability that emerged for victimization that didn't really emerge for offending. So like, for example, LGBT identification was like a moderate risk factor for victimization, but it was unrelated to involvement in crime. So yeah, interesting findings here in that a lot of these major correlates mm -hmm. of victimization that criminologists rely on did not perform again in school context. Yeah. All right. And then your final research question you and your colleagues examined was which factors appear to be 
uniquely linked to just perpetration or just victimization. So you've touched on this a little bit, but what were your findings unique to violent perpetration? Okay. So a lot of findings to sift through. Yes. But yeah, I mean, the top predictors were not the same. And I think the major takeaway here is that there are markers for vulnerability for victimization at school that are different from perpetration. And so if you're of the mindset of you're really into the victim offender overlap and you're like victimization and offending are the products of the same processes, they're interchangeable, victims and offenders are often one and the same. Well, that's clearly not the case here at school. There's definitely markers of vulnerability that put people at risk for victimization that are really unrelated to involvement in crime. And so there are many ways in which victimization and offending appear to be unique in the school context. And I think by focusing always on the overlap and what factors make victimization and offending similar masks those differences. And that can be problematic when trying to intervene and protect kids from becoming victims. They're not always the kids who are engaging in deviance that are also getting victimized. So there's a vulnerable subsets of kids, kids who have disabilities, who identify as LGBT, who, you know, are rejected by their friends, who have low social competence. I mean, yeah, these are not always the kids who are also engaging in deviance. Right. Right. Okay. So in this monograph, you split the implications into two sections. You have your criminological implications and then the implications for policy and practice. And you have quite a few for each section. So we want to talk to you about those a little bit. And starting with the implications for the academic audience, what are some of the implications from this monograph and its findings that may be most relevant to researchers? Yeah. So, I mean, the correlates that are typically associated with like opportunity and control perspectives did not perform well in the school setting. So across the board, I mean, the effects of self-control and social bonds were modest. Routine activity factors were virtually irrelevant. Even risky lifestyle indicators like deviant peers and substance use turned out to be weak correlates of victimization specifically at school. And then alternatively, you know, these factors like peer rejection and social competence tended to hold much more promise. And these are components of broader developmental perspectives that emphasize peer hierarchies, social status, and social vulnerability. So as a result, I mean, we really argued that peer and social dynamics should be better integrated into the study of violence and victimization at schools and the field's criminology in particular should really try better to expand its theoretical horizons to look beyond some of these traditional criminological theories. Because if not, I mean, a lot of the variation in school violence is likely to remain unexplained. So those were, that was kind of like the major takeaway. There's also a need for research to better identify causal process. A meta-analysis is great at identifying broad patterns, but it's not so great at identifying the fine-grained processes or mechanisms through which these things operate. This is just an average, right? So there's a lot more need to, you know, kind of look at those processes that tend to be black boxed and try and understand, okay, what are the actual theoretical processes and mechanisms that are linking some of these factors to victimization and violence at schools? And again, I mean, to hit this point, and I hit this point in a lot of my work, but violence and victimization are not interchangeable outcomes. And there's consequences for treating them as if they're the same. These are qualitatively different phenomena that 
we need to respect their differences rather than mask them. So those were kind of the main takeaways. There's, there's more, you know, I think moving forward, network-based approaches can be really useful to try and unpack and, and study directly some of these peer hierarchies and social dynamics that push people to the fringes versus move them more central into networks. And there's probably a need to, to be a little bit more sensitive to the age-graded nature of some of these risk factors, given that as kids mature through kindergarten to the 12th grade, I mean, they undergo a host of different biological, social changes. You know, the nature of peer groups are so different. And so some of these factors may definitely be age-graded, and that should really be explored in future work, too. In terms of policy and practice, if you want me to go there next, you know, there are interventions that exist that have proven to be successful that target these peer dynamics and these social hierarchies. And these tend to be really comprehensive and they tend to be focused not just on what happens at school, but they tend to involve the family and the broader community. So these are multi-systemic approaches that tend to take like an ecological perspective these have been really useful, but some of the issues implementing these is like their longevity and their ability to really, I guess, get everyone on board with multiple stakeholders. And especially, you know, when you're, you're trying to improve social competence and peer dynamics, you have also this political pressure and to target hard in schools, to put in police. And so they kind of, they can fall out of favor depending on who's in charge. So there's a lot of, I think, barriers to implementing programs that are proven to be effective and that really align with some of the findings of our meta-analysis and implement them successfully and long-term and in full as they're intended to be implemented. So Denise Goffertson has has talked about this extensively and it continues to be a challenge. But what I will say is, from a policy perspective, the simpler the solution and the simpler the policy is probably going to be the least effective. So Travis Pratt has this quote that he heard from someone else, but I'll claim it right now on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Complex problems always have an infinite number of simple, easy to understand wrong answers. And we see this in practice with respect to school violence. It's like the simpler the solution, the more excited people are about and they want to implement it, but it's not the right way to go. So I think you have to embrace the complexity and the most effective programs are those that that do just that, that target multiple factors at multiple levels of analysis at schools and communities and families. There's like a line in the monograph that you have that I really liked. So I'm going to read it. But The bottom line is that if we want to take the problems of school violence and victimization seriously, we first need to abandon the idea that more punitiveness is the answer. And I think that like kind of summarizes like your results because yeah. And what you just said, you know, it's, we need to look at the complexity and all of the issues and implement programs correctly that actually get at the heart of the problem. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I think that line also reminds so the principal at the school that my wife was working on, he's an interesting character because he was all like, uh, I'm not a punitive principal. I'm not trigger happy. But then if you look at the records, like 
dude, you're suspending students like left and right. Like you are the definition of punitive. But then it would really frustrate my wife because she would come home and tell me, like, we're not addressing the underlying issue. Like he's just suspending these students. Like he's sending the so there was one student that was actively trying to get suspended and she got suspended. And so my wife got really frustrated because you're basically giving her what she wants. Like we're not addressing the problem. Like this suspension stuff is not doing anything for her. Right. And you see the same line of reasoning with respect to historically wanting to ramp up penalties for crime and increase incarceration, sentence length and mandatory minimum policies. I mean, this is all kind of stemming from the same thirst for punitiveness that is a hallmark of American society. And I can say that because I'm Canadian. So, (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, the preference for schools and even communities to adopt these various potentially harmful approaches, you know, target hardening, you know, increasing police officers in schools, ramping up zero tolerance policies for misbehavior, especially in light of evidence-based interventions that have been demonstrated using rigorous research to actually improve school safety is painful. And this is a major, major obstacle to effective school violence prevention. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that, so going back to that Travis Pratt quote, you know, I think, you know, there's a fine line to walk, right? Like you don't want to be complex for the sake of being complex. Oh no, we don't want unnecessary complexity. Right. But But you also don't want to oversimplify things. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I know there's some people that push back on the idea that complex problems require complex answers, but I think that comes from people sort of mistaking complex with parsimonious. Like you want like yeah. the cleanest, most efficient answer to the problem. And that may not necessarily mean it's a simple solution, mm-hmm. but it's also not overly complicated. Yeah. Right. Exactly. We're not trying to do like, uh, we're, I'm not advocating for like situational action theory in practice here, you know, no, no. But I am saying that there's more to this issue than just, let's just ramp up punitiveness yeah. and increase zero tolerance policies and just put police in schools and violence will be solved. It's right. not that simple. Yeah. It also, now I'm just going down memory lane all over the place. <laughs> but when I was working with, with the gang reduction and youth development program in Los Angeles, we'd have these meetings and we talk about like why the model is the way that it is. And one of the things that always stuck with me and I thought was super interesting was the lead researcher, Denise Hertz. She told us, well, at first we tried addressing things like self-esteem because we thought if we addressed their self-esteem, you know, things would get better. But we just ended up with gang members that felt good about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so we had yeah. to sort of retool the way that we did things to really address the issue. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, your monograph starts getting people to think about what factors are actually in play here and are most important. I hope so. And I mean, our, our primary audience for this is criminologists. And so I hope that if anything, it does kind of help expand some of the horizons mm-hmm. for some individuals who are doing work in this area. And the more the better. I mean, there's several directions for future work outlined in here. Please, anyone take them, run with them, you know? So I I hope that it does provide a contribution to the literature and that, you know, we tend to see some, you know, other approaches. 
mm-hmm. in our field because of it. So, yeah. Okay. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to our discussion of school violence and victimization that we maybe haven't no. talked about yet? Not really. I feel like I've talked so long. This may be one of your longest podcast episodes, but I just love talking. So I'm sorry, but I'll end it there. I mean, I don't have much to add. This will hopefully come out soon. And I know that the Element series provides the monograph for free for like the first few weeks. So I'll be sure to disseminate it so that people can access it and read it for free. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And we'll throw it up on our website and social media as well. And awesome and also i think everyone always thinks that they have the longest episode (laughs) i think so too (laughs) so i think you're fine but anyway well thank you so much jill it's been great having you on is there anything that you would like to plug besides the monograph anything coming out related to these topics I mean, I think, so our Revitalizing Victimization Theory book, the edited volume in the Advances in Criminological Theory series is awesome. And we have such great contributors to that book. It's like Chris Schreck, Mark Berg, Michael Gopferson, Charles Kubrin, Holly Nyseth Brem. I mean, there's there's some, some amazing chapters in there that I really do hope kind of revitalize mm-hmm. these interesting debates and discussions about why victimization happens because after kind of the boom and theorizing that happened decades prior, I mean, it's kind of been stagnant. And so there's so many unanswered questions and it's really a time to, I hope, enrich our theoretical understandings of victimization and, and better appreciate the ways in which victimization is unique from perpetration. So that's the one thing I'd like to plug and that's it. All right. And then where can people find you? Social media, email? I have Twitter. Mostly I just retweet things and hype the work of my friends. So I haven't, I'm not like a big Twitter presence, but I do have it. So there, but also just email me too. That'd be great. Yeah. If anyone wants to reach out, I hope this made sense. It was really fun. Good. I'm glad. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. The Criminology Academy is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Crim Academy. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. Alternatively, let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. And lastly, share The Crim Academy episodes with your friends and family. Mm